Which are more likely to change your life? Simple ideas or complicated ones? I think we'd agree when we stop and think about it that it's often the simple ideas that have a more profound effect on our lives. It's simple ideas properly taken on board which have the most potential to transform the people that we are. Companies like Apple spend millions trying to make their designs as simple as possible. Simplicity is a virtue to them, not a lack of sophistication. This morning is nothing complicated. It's simple. But simplicity shouldn't be confused with shallowness. The ideas we're going to look at this morning are truly life-changing in their scope and profoundness. What we have here is no less than a roadmap for the Christian life in just two verses. A roadmap that if we follow, it will be nothing short of transformational for our lives. The details of the map are sketched out in the chapters to come, which we'll look at in some depth over the coming weeks. But this is the overview, the flyover. This shows us where we're going. It shows us what it means to live for Jesus and why we're doing it. So firstly, why we're doing it. Have a look with me at verse 1 again. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. We're doing this because of mercy. That's our first point, because of mercy. Paul sums up his whole message so far in Romans in one word, mercy, or more, mercies, because there are many of them. Mercy, as we said last week, is when we don't receive the bad things that we deserve. And that so well sums up the message so far. Romans 1 to 3 told us what we deserve. How we as humankind have turned against God. How we've swapped God for lesser things. How we swap the truth of God for a lie. How we're guilty before a holy God. So Paul tells us that God has handed us over to our sin. Letting us get on with destroying ourselves and each other. God doesn't have to step in to make things worse, so to speak. We're quite capable of doing that ourselves. God simply hands us over to ourselves and we find that we become slaves to our own passions and desires. Ultimately, though, God will step in. Judgment will come and hell will follow. It's not pleasant. It's not nice. But it's what the Bible says that we deserve. But mercy is not getting the bad things that we deserve. God steps in in a different way as he comes to our world as Jesus to deal with our problem. To pay the price for our sin. To declare us not guilty in his sight. To be a sacrifice on our behalf. To free us from our slavery to sin. He has fixed what we broke. He has shown us mercy when we deserved judgment. And this gift of mercy comes to us not as something that we earn by good works. A gift that is earned is not a gift, is it? It's a wage. Mercy that is deserved is not mercy by definition. No, this gift comes to us by merely putting our trust in the giver, having faith in him. So Paul writes at the end of Romans 3, For all have sinned 
and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This gift comes to us by faith alone. The same faith that Abraham had. That's what we see in chapter 4. And it's a gift that brings us peace with God and hope in the midst of suffering. That's chapter 5. It's not a gift that promotes or excuses sin. Chapter 6. That same gift that releases us from the penalty of sin releases us from the power of sin. It's a gift that sets us at war with our old sinful selves. That's chapter 7. But it's a gift that comes with the Spirit's help in the battle. Chapter 8. And it comes as well with a God who is working everything for our good. It's a gift that pays no regard to race or religiosity. That's chapters 9 to 11. Being part of God's people is down to God's mercy and kindness towards us. Paul sums it up quite nicely in Romans 9, 16. He says this, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. We are now beloved children of God, welcomed into God's family, freed from our judgment, given his spirit and loved by God. And it's not down to us and our efforts, however good or bad we've been. It's all down to his mercy, his many mercies. And in light of that, Paul appeals to us, not as an apostle, not as an overruling authority, but as a brother. Do you see that in that verse? He calls us brothers. He is a vessel of God's mercy himself. So he exhorts us, he encourages us, urges us, challenges us even, as an older brother might do, to do what he says. That word to challenge or to urge is is a word we kept meeting in Hebrews, parakleu, to call alongside of. It's what we were to do to one another daily in Hebrews 3. What we're to do when we gather in Hebrews 10. It's what the Holy Spirit does with us internally in John's Gospel. And Paul does it now as our older brother in the faith. Urging us, pushing us on, spurring us on like in a race. Telling us the direction to go. He wants us to show, he wants to show us what we do in response to the kindness and mercy that God has shown us. What's the direction that we should travel? Well, that's our second point. Be a sacrifice. Be a sacrifice. Let me read to you verse one again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul says, offer your body as a sacrifice. Consider yourself dead to self and no longer yours. He's not talking about blowing ourselves up as a martyr, God forbid. He's talking about living as a martyr. A living sacrifice, a daily sacrifice. Daily laying down your life for him. It's the idea of dying to self and living for him. As the old hymn goes, self on the cross 
and Christ on the throne. Does that sum up your life? Self on the cross and Christ on the throne. We're to lay our lives down daily, a living sacrifice. But what Paul says is is not new, is it? Actually, Jesus talks in this way as well. If you think about Jesus' death on the cross as a sacrifice, which is how the Bible speaks of it, listen to what Jesus says in Luke 9.23. And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, what Jesus did, in some way we do. In Hebrews, Jesus is the great high priest who presents his own body as a sacrifice. Now we as priests under him present our own bodies as a sacrifice. Not as sacrifices that take away the penalty of sin, that was for Jesus alone. But as sacrifices that apply the power of Jesus' sacrifice to the reign of sin in our bodies. I'll say that again. Our sacrifices apply the power of Jesus' sacrifice to the reign of sin in our bodies. We choose not to give the members of our body to sin and instead to give them to Christ. Paul's already said this in Romans, Romans 6.13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. What he's saying is imagine yourself as an Old Testament priest approaching the altar, but in your hands is not a lamb, but your own body, your own self. This is what we're called to do. Lay down our self on the altar. To give yourself as a sacrifice to the Lord. Your life is over and you now belong to God. You're set apart as holy, set apart for his use alone. You are now a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Is that how you view your life? How you view yourself? Not a life lived for self but a life devoted entirely to God. There's no half measures here, are there? I'm always struck when people give their testimonies, their stories of how they became believers, that this is the sort of thing that's sorely lacking often. You know how it goes, I used to be like this, and now I'm like this. You either have the dramatic ones, I used to be a drug dealer, and now I'm a model citizen. But in one sense, it would be the same if they'd become a Buddhist, or a Muslim. Or you get the ones where nothing much has changed, you know, trying to find sins that they committed when they were six to try and explain how their life is different. But how many of us can say this? I used to live for myself, and now I live entirely for God. The incredible truth of the gospel means that I've given up on myself entirely. You know, imagine one that went like this. On April 3rd, 1995, I died. The person you now see before you belongs to God. Well, that's basically how Paul describes his life in Galatians. We sang about it earlier. Galatians 2.20. 
I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul is dead, says Paul. And he goes on. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He's saying I live for Jesus now. That's what my life is about. So there's a sense in which I need to get up every morning and say to myself, Chris Haley is dead. What he wants doesn't count anymore. My life is a sacrifice to God. What does God want me to do today? Jesus models this in the Garden of Gethsemane as he approaches the cross. He says, not my will, but yours be done. Now that wasn't a fatalistic prayer, a sort of case sarah sarah. It was a decision. It was a decision to go to the cross. Have you decided to go to the cross? Or have you settled for the easy route? You know the easy route? Not your will, but mine be done. Not your will, but what everyone else is doing. Not your will, but what feels comfortable to me. Oh, we don't say that, do we? We wrap it up in religious language. I don't feel called to do this. I've prayed about it, and I don't think that I should. I don't feel led to sacrifice in this way. The problem is that the heart is deceitful above all things. And the flesh, the old self, calls us to self-preservation. But Jesus calls us to lay down our lives. In Mark 8.35 he says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. You see, the flesh speaks religionese. It can wrap things up in religious language. The devil definitely does that kind of thing. But if you're saying one thing and Jesus is saying something else, then who's right? Who do you think should be trusted? We need to think in all circumstances, in all situations, not what is best for me, but what is best for God? What is best for the gospel? We put him first in all situations. And that will often mean that we don't get everything that we want. We won't find things as easy as the world around us. But that's what it means to live as a living sacrifice. Dying to self and what I want and living instead for Christ. Now I know some of you will be thinking, well this sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? But is it? Is it really? Paul calls it here our spiritual worship. Now the word spiritual is the word logikos. It's notoriously difficult to translate. It has to do with the mind, logic and reason. It's where we get our word logic from. And it's translated spiritual here to contrast with the word body earlier on in the verse. It's our sort of internal worship. That's how the translation we've got puts it. But I think other translations have it better when they translate it as reasonable, 
logical, rational. What Paul is saying is that given all that God has done for us, all that we saw in chapters 1 to 11, this is not extreme. It's rational. It's logical. It's reasonable. It's like the old Young Life campaign motto, taken from the words of Victorian cricketer C.T. Studd. He said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. I'll say that again. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. After he said that, he went on to give away his fortune of millions of pounds in today's money and go and live as a missionary in China. That's practicing what you preach, isn't it? It reminds me a bit of that section in Pride and Prejudice when Mr. Bennett, the father of the family, believes his brother-in-law has paid a tremendous amount of money to ensure that his daughter is married and so avoid a scandal. He just can't get his head around the amount of money he's paid. He's seemingly cancelled debts, paid off the groom, paid for the wedding. And he's left with the question, what do you do in the face of such generosity? And Mr. Bennett asked the question, how can I ever repay him? But it's not a question of repayment, is it? This is a gift. In both cases, it's a gift. To attempt to repay a gift is an insult to the generosity of the giver. So the question is not how do we repay God, but how do we respond to God? A God who sacrifices his very self for you. Well, the answer given here is that we do it in sacrificing our very self to him. And that's not extreme. It's logical. In the face of such incredible, gobsmacking, earth-shattering mercy. It's only reasonable. But how do we do that in practice? What does it mean to live as a living sacrifice? Well, in one sense, as I said at the beginning, that's the whole of Romans 12 to 15. And we're going to pick that apart in the coming weeks. But here he gives us that overview, that general direction that we're heading. And what he says is our last heading, be transformed, be transformed. Have a look with me at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now I'm going to deal with this verse backwards. Because the whole verse really hangs on the meaning of that word discern towards the end of the verse. You see where it says, by testing you may discern what is the will of God. Now when I was younger, I always read this verse as a sort of supernatural guidance verse. You know what I mean? Do this and you'll know whether God wants you to marry Rebecca or Rachel. Whether you should be a banker or a baker. God will give you some insight into his secret plan. But that's not really what the word discern means here. The translators have tried to get the meaning across by adding, by testing. But elsewhere in Romans, the word is nearly always translated as approve. 
and then one time to see fit. So Romans 14 verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Romans 2.18, and you know the will of God and approve of what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. Romans 14 verse 18, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. And if you make this word negative in Greek, it becomes reject. So you could translate this verse this way. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may not reject what is the will of God, that is good and acceptable and perfect. Or to put it positively, that last bit, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may approve of what the will of God is. The goal then is not special insight into things that God has not revealed, but that we would approve of what God has revealed, that we'd live it out, that we take God's will for a spin and see that it's good, experience that it's good and acceptable and perfect, that we taste and see that the Lord is good, that we try and confirm that this is the right thing, the good thing. J.B. Phillips translated this part of the verse like this, so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good. He wants us to live out and approve of God's plan, his will that's been revealed to us. What is that plan? What is that will? Well, from the context, it's offering ourselves as living sacrifices. That is God's will for our lives. But how then do we come not only to do those things, to, to offer our bodies, but to approve of something so radical as that? How can we get to actually want to do this, to approve of it, like it, if you like? By having our minds renewed. By having our attitudes changed. That then will make us approve of God's plan, of his will. Have a look at verse 2 again. That by the renewal of your mind, transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. How does that change of mind, that renewal of mind happen? Well, it's something spiritual. The only other time this word renewal is used in scripture it has to do with the work of the Spirit. So Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit restores and refreshes our minds to make them what they were supposed to be. If you were with us back in Romans 1, uh, think back to then, if not, look back and see what's happened to our minds and what comes from that. Romans 1, 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. 
They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The mind there, you see, was broken. The consequence was what followed that torrent of sin and destruction. And not only do they practice it, or did we practice it, but there's the approval of it as well, that same word as before. A broken mind leads to the approval of sin. So a renewed mind should lead to the approval of God's will. God is putting right what went wrong, putting things back as they should be. God has a man on the inside, a mind being renewed by the Spirit. How does that help us understand what's going on? Well, when we put our renewed mind into action, it will transform our lives. It will change us from within. Real change, lasting change, genuine transformation. But what sort of transformation? What form does that transformation take? Well, it's the transformation from being in the image of the world to being in the image of Christ. It's a transformation that includes all of us, mind, soul and body. Not that we start to look like Jesus physically, but that we begin to use our bodies as Jesus used his body. Hands that care for the needy. Ears that listen to the vulnerable. Feet ready to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And how different is that from how we used our bodies in Romans 3? Do you remember that shocking description? Romans 3, 13 to 18. Their throat is an open grave. Their tongues uh, they use to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what we were like. But we are no longer to conform to the ways of the world. We're no longer to live a normal life anymore. I mean, why would your life be normal as a living sacrifice? Why would your life be normal if Romans 1 to 11 is true? So often we're out to prove that Christians are just like everybody else. And in many ways we are, aren't we? We're not superior to the world around us. We don't have two heads. We don't all go live in monasteries and put sort of shaved bits on our head. But we're not normal. I mean, we're rational people who believed that a man rose from the dead and that that event changed everything. We're people who live for the praise of a man who most of the rest of the world thinks is dead or never even existed in the first place. That's not normal. But that's okay. One thing our society has got right is that there's no virtue in being normal. I mean, who wants to be normal? And I don't think the world is surprised that we're not normal. I think it's surprised that given what we believe, we're not more abnormal. 
And they might be right, mightn't they? I mean, shouldn't we a bit, be a bit less normal? What would a life truly lived along the lines of the one described here look like? It wouldn't be normal, would it? How would my life look if I really applied this to the big picture of, of my life? It wouldn't be normal. I suspect that we won't all do a CT stud, you know, sell our houses and move to China. But in one sense, why wouldn't we? Why not? Couldn't that be a way to respond to this? Or would that be too radical a thing for God to ask? Would that be too much to ask in view of God's mercy towards you? And if it's not too much to ask, what about those smaller things, those smaller sacrifices that he asks us to make? Is it too much to ask you to devote some time to him every day? Is it too much of him to ask ask you to speak for him in your workplace, in your street, in your school? Is it too much to ask to serve your brothers and sisters in church? To love them and see their needs met? See, what God asks here isn't complicated, is it? It's simple. But simple, as we said at the beginning, isn't shallow. Actually, if we applied this truth, in many ways our lives would be turned upside down, wouldn't they? And I suspect the reason that our lives aren't turned upside down is not that we don't understand it. It's that we've forgotten that we were never remade to conform. We've become too sold on being normal, which if you think about it, is just another way of saying conform to the world around you. So will you resolve this morning to be abnormal, whatever the cost, to be a sacrifice, to be transformed, to be the way that Jesus wants you to be, rather than just what you've fallen into being, to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. I'm going to pray a prayer now, and it's a prayer of dedication. We don't do this kind of thing very often, but it seems fitting at this point. I'm going to put some words up on the screen, and if you want, you can pray along with them as we close. I'm going to be praying them for myself, that God would take me and transform me and use me in whatever way he sees fit. I'm going to put the words up on the screen. I'll just give you a second to look through them. And then we'll pray them together. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your sacrifice for me. Thank you for the mercy you have shown me in Christ. Transform my life that I might live for you alone as a living sacrifice. Help me to fight the urge to be normal and instead to live radically for you with every fibre of my being. In Jesus' name, Amen. And may God give us the strength to live for him this week. Amen.